Hello and welcome to Crafting a Revolution, the podcast. My name is Katie Freeman and I am your host. Every Wednesday and Friday, I am bringing you interviews with female and non-binary makers of all kinds from all over the world. Today's guest is Phoebe Kuo, who is a wood cooper. Also, she's a self-described artist working in wood. Um, just some amazing, amazing pieces that she's doing. She's currently located in the Chicago area, though she is from California. And we talk a bit about that move and how that's affected her practice. Um, but super excited to get to bring you this interview as always. Um, so before we hop on in with Phoebe, I want to give a big shout out and thanks to the patrons over on Patreon. So thank you so much, Annette, 513 Woodworks, Katie, Women in Woodworking, Kevin, Lefty's Woodshop, Christy, Twisted Twine, Jeremy, Jeremy Spies, Sammy, Go Sammy Lee, Sven, Dwarf Size Workshop, Rachel, Moody Makes, Bonnie, Tool Mom, Bonnie, toolmomstore.com, Laura, Oakley Soap Company, Mary Lou, Made by Mary Lou, Brandy, Studio, Obey, Lee, The Rainbow Carver, Ellen, Little Bear, Furniture, and Ethan, Ethan Carter Designs. Thank you all so very much for your continued and ongoing support. I appreciate you all so very much. And if you would like to get your name added to this list, you absolutely can. It's super easy. Just hit pause here in a second. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash crafting a revolution and you can join the revolution pod squad right over there. Bunch of different options, pretty much an option for any kind of range. So go check it out. Get your name added to the start of the list for every episode. All right, with no further ado, here is Phoebe Quo. Um, uh, Phoebe, I always like to start by having my guests introduce themselves. So would you do that for me? Sure. Um, hi, my name is Phoebe Quo, pronounced Quo like status quo, but with a K. And currently I am based in Evanston, Illinois. My partner is in grad school here. I'm from California, born and raised. And I, I do miss it, although I'm really liking the Chicago area. Um, I am working, well, I'm a woodworker. I call myself a woodworker. Um, I sometimes also say artist. So I'm an artist working in wood and I, have training in uh, design, furniture, a little boat building. And I also had a prior life as a design ethnographer. Okay, <laughs> a lot a lot to definitely dive into. And I'm gonna say like, currently we're neighbors cause I'm in Iowa. So um, cool. yeah, we're not that far apart. Chicago is about, three and a half hour drive uh, for me because I'm in eastern Iowa. So um, what part of California were you in? Yeah, so most <clears throat> recently I lived for over a decade in the San Francisco Bay Area. I was in the area for undergrad and then I lived in San Francisco proper for basically the first 10 years of my adult life. Okay. Uh, I never, um, my wife and I lived in um, Oceanside, California for a little over, you know, four years. And we never made it up to the Bay Area. 
she's been there before just on work travel, but I never made it up there. It's definitely on my bucket list of places to, to make it to. Nice. Oceanside is SoCal. Yep. It's Northern San Diego County. So it's like, it's pretty much like right on the border of San Diego County and um, Orange County. Gotcha. Yeah. 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 Um, So where did you kind of, where'd you grow up and what were you, you know, interested in as a kid? Sure. Yeah. So I was born and raised and grew up in a small city called Santa Maria, like the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria. (laughs) And um, (laughs) it was, it felt, and I think it is, it felt like a small town. Mm -hmm. had a very agricultural focus. There were a lot of fields. I grew up near strawberry fields. Um, We had a strawberry festival. We had an annual rodeo. And a lot of people were driving around in big pickup trucks with you know, wearing Wranglers. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a beautiful place to grow up, also quite a conservative place, especially in the 80s and 90s when I was living there. Um, so my parents, um, my parents immigrated from Taiwan to California in the 70s for graduate school, and they met in California. I have two sisters, so there's three girls, and I would say we definitely didn't fit in where we grew up, um, both from sort of an education level and from uh, not being white level. Mm-hmm. So definitely growing up, I was always eager to see something else or go somewhere else, you know? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you, I mean, um... I want to ask, I ask two follow-up questions to that. So if you were in an agricultural area, this, like, were there a lot of migrant workers in the area um, as well, or was it like predominantly white? Yeah, I think it was a split 50-50, you know, white and Latinx. Mm-hmm. And it's flopped even more towards Latinx, I think, since I've left. And mm-hmm. it has also shifted more blue. Mm-hmm which has been really interesting to see, you know, now there's a democratic mayor and I'm like, what? (laughs) (laughs) I remember when I was an undergrad, which was in the mid 2000s, I realized I could look up political donations. Mm -hmm. I looked up the donations to Prop 8, which was the um, gay marriage. Yeah. Yeah, you you remember. And- Oh, yes. (laughs) 82% had, had uh, donated to the anti-gay side. And it was really, it was, it really hit at home where I had, where I had grown up, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the other part I wanted to ask is when you said like educationally, you didn't feel like you kind of like fit into the area. Um, can you just elaborate on what you mean by that? Yeah. So at the time that my parents, um, at the time that my parents came to the U.S., there were quotas, basically. There were immigration quotas that I didn't become aware of until later. So I thought, of course, my parents are highly educated. They have doctorates. Um, but it turns out that the U.S. only let certain kinds of people from Taiwan into the country. So um, that's part of the origin of the model minority myth. There are a lot of 
ways that has worked. Um, but yes, my parents were highly educated. We landed in a place where I think the number of people with bachelor's degrees is in like the mid teens. Okay. So it's not better or worse. We were just right. focusing on education was not the prime predominant culture there. So, right. Yeah. And I would, I'm, I'm going to make an assumption here that probably in your home, there was a high focus on education. I think so. I don't feel that I ever grew up in what people think of as like a tiger mom. Mm-hmm. And my parents let us uh, explore a lot of interests, but um, school was important. Mm-hmm. And I liked to be, I, I liked school and doing well in school. So yes. Mm-hmm. I know like, at least personally growing up. So, I mean, growing up in Iowa in the Midwest, there was definitely, even though I'm back here now, there was definitely a need or a feel of like, I need to get out of here. Um, uh, especially uh, because I knew from a very young age about my sexuality and knew how not accepted it was um, where I grew up. And so I focused myself focused so hard on education because I felt like that was like the way to get out. Um, and, and I think, I, I think to some degrees that kept me safe because it also like being so highly focused on it, I didn't necessarily have a social circle. And, <laughs> and I think that was beneficial in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. You know. Yeah, for sure. I think for so many different types of people and different reasons, education is a way out, right? Mm -hmm. For my parents, education was their ticket to the United States. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was my ticket out of this weird cow town I grew up. (laughs) You know, I now feel, I mean, I now have nice feelings towards, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, So were you interested in like art or making? you know, at all as a, as a kid and as you went into like high school and stuff? Yeah, I was. I think my parents always made sure we had, you know, kid art supplies. We didn't have access to very high culture and, um, but there were always colored pencils, lots of scrap paper. My dad worked in a government office and he would always come home and talk about how wasteful they were, but he would come home and bring reams of like copy paper where they had mm-hmm. only page but thrown away more pages so this is very like immigrant thrift meant I had a lot of things to draw on um the interesting exception was that I had music lessons starting um when I was nine eight or nine and that was kind of a a view into a a bigger world so Mm -hmm. um a, a cultured world I guess predominantly yeah now that I think of it there were a lot of there were a lot there were a lot of very successful Asian um, musicians that I saw. So that was probably nice to see, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, so I think, I think the world of classical music sort of clued me into, oh, there are, there are exciting things happening out there in the world that you don't necessarily see represented in Santa Maria. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sort of opened up my world probably. Um, yeah. yeah. What instrument did you play? I played violin. Okay. Um, I played viola from like fourth grade all the way through high school. Um, 
not that I claimed to be any good whatsoever. I was like the worst student when it came to uh, music, but it gave me, uh, it gave me a group of people that I felt like I could relate to more um, for sure. So awesome. yeah. 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 I love the viola. I think it's like, it's a sexy throaty instrument. <laughs> it is. <laughs> And I and I had to chuckle when you talked about the copy paper being brought home because that's what my wife does. I mean, she works in like kind of government systems type stuff too. And so yes, she brings home like all of the like recycled like pages that people just like throw in the bin straight off the copier. And that's what our kids draw on as well. And it's plenty of paper in our house. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> Um, so what did you do post high school? Like where did, where did your adventure take you? Yeah, so um, when I was in high school, yeah, when I was in high school, I, I knew I wanted to go to college. Um, I had one older sister who had gone before me um, and she had moved out of state for college and I wanted to too. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, my parents and my school counselor actually convinced me not to go so far. <laughs> I still wonder what would have happened if I had ended up in New York City, which is what I wanted. But mm -hmm. I'm actually grateful they convinced me to stay in state. Um, a lot of my friend group is still from my undergrad. So I went to school in the Bay Area and I studied design, which was really great for me because it was a combination of like engineering classes and art classes. Mm -hmm. so I satisfied my parents by getting a supposedly practical degree, mm -hmm. but you know, I struggled through making robots and like really barely passed physics. Um, and I really enjoyed the art classes and the mm -hmm. sort of human centered design classes. Mm -hmm. right. Yeah, so I mean, I guess when you say design, there's a lot that could fall into that category. So was there a specific type of design you were working on? Yeah, so um, my degree was called product design mm -hmm. and it was housed in the engineering department, mm -hmm. but it was focused really on understanding the human needs going into designing any kind of product. So it could be a service or like a granola bar or a car. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So there was a bit of freedom there. Um, a lot of my classmates turned out to be you know, entrepreneurs that started their own businesses, making snowshoes or apps. Um, but my favorite classes were the classes where they taught us how to use the shop. Mm -hmm. Pretty nice shop, you know, metal shop, wood shop. And the way they talked about it to us was, oh, you need to know how things are made so you can tell your contractors in China how to make it. And I was maybe one of the few in my class that was like, nope, that's okay. I'm going to make it myself. Like, <laughs> I want to make it. Right. <laughs> so while, my other, while my classmates were off having keggers on Fridays, I was in the TIG welding station, like practicing my stacks of dimes. Nice. Yeah. Very nice. How did, I mean, yeah, how did I get into wood? Was that your first, like, in that shop space, did you have your first experience with wood? You know, I think I might have turned a bowl or something, um, mm -hmm. but there was always a wait. You had to reserve time. Um, so no, I didn't do a lot of woodworking at all in college. And if I reflect, I think my dad, when I was young, had access to a wood shop that was on the Air Force Base, 
Air Force Base where he worked. Um, and he, you know, again, the immigrant thrift thing, he would just make things we needed around the house. He didn't have any formal training, but he was like mathematically inclined. So mm-hmm. he built bookshelves or he built me a bunk bed. And I think what I saw in wood from that early age was, oh, wood lets you make something you need, but you don't have. So it was very much about self-reliance, um, sort of empowerment, mm-hmm. and also like scrappiness and resourcefulness. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't think of wood at that time, or even know of wood as something that people made art with. If that makes mm-hmm. sense. Oh yeah, it makes complete sense. I mean, very. I didn't have anybody like in my direct familial life, like currently making things when I was growing up, but in our house, we had several pieces that my great-great-grandfather had made um, and had, you know, been passed down through generations. So it was like an idea that I knew of like exactly that, like wood is this material that you can make things for your home from. Um, But I had no idea that you could, that it could be art too or, you know, that there was any level of that to it. Um, And, you know, I still have a few pieces of my great-great-grandfather's and I know he was probably self-taught and bless his heart, everything is like nailed to high heaven and screwed to high heaven. (laughs) And a lot of it needs work, you know, uh, uh, but still it's like, they're still functional pieces, you know, and they're over 60 years old, so. that part of it too was always something that I hung on to that's something you know and now when I make things for my kids it's like they understand that that's something they can have for their whole life um and pass down you know so yeah it's pretty exciting hey makers so today's podcast episode is sponsored in part by Alicia Van Osdahl, who is the owner of Basil Blue Design Company. Alicia is a maker of all things, really. Her focus is on beautiful craftsmanship through woodworking, repurposing, refinishing art and sculpture. Her background includes 30 years of graphic design, logos, and branding. If you have an idea or concept that and need a creative solution or graphic design, you can email Alicia directly at Alicia, and that is A-L-I-C-I-A at basilblue.com. Or you can visit her website at www.basilblue.com. And fun fact, Alicia actually designed the logo for Crafting Revolution. So that is an example of the impeccable work you can expect if that is something you are in the market for. So be sure to look up Alicia again at her website, basilblue.com. All right, let's get back into the action. Yeah, it's a very accessible medium in some ways. Yeah, so I wanna like in that product design um, degree course and stuff, how many, like how many women were in that space? Yeah, that's a great question. So. It's a funny thing. It was very, um, very gender. I would say it was, it had a good gender balance. Okay. Might even have been more women because it had the design component in it. Mm -hmm. Right. Versus the like maybe more straight uh, engineering path. 
Exactly. Yeah, yeah, I would say definitely the physics physics classes and the ME classes, the one those, the ones that I mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. probably skewed more male. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What about um, like ethnicity mix? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, even at the time, my question was always like, why are there so many other Asian women in product design? <laughs> I can only imagine that a lot of them were in the same boat as me, <laughs> of a legitimate path yeah. into a creative field but I can only speculate. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, again, this is outside just maybe understanding like going to school in the Bay Area, probably especially during the time you were there, had a much larger Asian population. Too. I think that's true. Yeah, I think that at my school, there was probably at least 20% Asian. Yeah, I feel like, yeah, I feel like that. I think it's probably still true that there's a higher level of um, Asian population, specifically in the Bay Area. Um, right. Like Southern California, not so much. You know, Southern oh, really? California. Yeah, Southern California, maybe LA. There's a decent, I would say yeah, there's a I decent Asian in LA. In, in LA. Yeah, but like. It, 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 sorry. No, that's right. I was going to say, like, San Diego, though, is like very heavily. Latinx. Yes. Yeah. That, that, that squares with what I. Yeah. Heard. And I should, I should clarify, we're talking about Asian American. Yes. Students. Yes. 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 I think there have been later waves of just Asian, Asian from, from China and mm -hmm. especially, which I've seen lately. Yeah. 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 Thank you for clarifying that. Yes. Uh, I was speaking of Asian American as well. <laughs> yeah, that was for me yeah. yeah um so I mean it sounds like you went from a not very representative area to um at least a much better representative area or some some way to connect with um more of who you are and how you present the world yeah although I think what's funny is when I was in high school in this small town I had a predominantly Asian American friend group. We were really the United Nations. There was one Filipino gal, one Korean, one Japanese American and me. And when I was at Stanford, I think um, I had a much more mixed friend group and I actually didn't connect with the Asian American student groups because I had not grown up with those communities. So the students who had come from LA where they were just surrounded by boba shops and other Asian students. Right. They had this very particular culture that I had no in mm -hmm. or interest in because of that. So um, although I had a lot of Asian American classmates, I don't know that I don't know that I noticed them that much, which sounds awful now. Um, but I don't think it sounds awful. I mean I think it's just I mean it's your experience. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, I mean, I went to, it was funny, I, I picked a degree too, that like, would be like, seen as legitimate, um, you know, career path type thing. But probably the most exciting thing to me was that like, we had shop time and on, you know, like, especially I was in, I did undergrad in, um, early 2000s and so it's like at that point in time like I paid $15 a semester to have access to the shop um, which is extremely cheap and if I had any understanding at that time of like what all that equipment just cost for like 
upkeep. <laughs> Uh, but, but it was like wood shop and metal shop and there was even a foundry so it was like you got to do all kinds of cool stuff yeah totally and it's, sometimes it's the first time you've been exposed what was your degree in manufacturing technology very um, cool yeah so it was, it's much more focused on like I took you know multiple classes and like I can run a CNC machine type thing so there's that focus and then there was like design focus. Really, it ends up making you be like an industrial engineer, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, so kind of a Jane of all trades, you understand how things are made, uh, put together and then you can go out and work with manufacturers. Um, so it's definitely, I wish I had known though about product design at that age like I think that would have I would have felt much more comfortable in like that space you would have vibed with that yeah. I would have I would have because I mean the class that I took I mean I was one the only woman like mm -hmm. at all you know which is fine I'm comfortable hanging with the guys but um it it was what it was and um and now like the places that it puts me like, I love going into places that make things. Like, I still get excited by the smell of, like, the, you know, lubricant of a CNC machine and stuff like that. I like seeing that stuff. But the actual culture of those places, I don't fit in, like, at all. And so now it's, like, now I just, it's a constant, like, oh, yay, I get to go to another place that, like, I don't get to be anything that's me at all. Um yeah. And so that's like an understanding. I think product design would have allowed me to maybe go into businesses, at least in like a different role or a spot that I feel like I would have fit in a little bit. Yeah, more. yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I have no doubt that you can hang with the, the dudes, but it, <laughs> representation matters. I mean, I was there at a very strange inflection point, which was that industrial design was waning mm -hmm. as sort of at least something people were doing in the United States. But UX, you know, user interface design had not yes. quite come in yet. And so people were like, what are we going to do with this degree? Um, so in, in that sense, it was very freeing. Um, but in the other sense, it was very hard to find an obvious path when I left college. I would yeah. do an interview at industrial design or like I do an inner 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 informational session with the industrial design company and they'd be like we don't hire people from your school you guys don't know how to you know make 10 renditions of a toaster and I was like you're right we don't yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. so what was your path after college yeah it was um I think that I was very lucky because I didn't know what I wanted to do with my degree, even when I started, but especially when I finished. And for better or for worse, that's how I've kind of conducted my life, which is what do I, what do I really have energy to do right now? I don't worry so much about where that's going to lead me. So far, it's worked out, but I'm, we can talk about this later, but I'm sort of in that spot again now. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, I, I, I came out, I, didn't have a clear path. I started working with a design magazine that some grad students had started. Um, and I decided to interview an old professor of mine 
I have no networking savvy. I did not go in looking for a job. We were doing a theme and he had designed something that matched. So I was like, oh, let me interview my professor. And we had a nice little chat. And at the end he said, what are you doing right now? I said, oh, you know, I'm just trying to figure out what to do next. And he offered me a contract position at his small company. Mm -hmm. It was not a sexy position. I was sitting in the back of a darkened office watching 40 hours of interview tape every week and tagging it with code words. And I did that for three months. Um, and at the end of the three months, they said, how would you like to be hired full time, not to watch videos, but to do design interviews. And at that point I had watched so many hours of design interviews, I kind of knew what to do. Right. And so I ended up doing that job for seven years. Okay. Wow. Now I feel like I need to pick your brain about like, how well do I do interviews? Like, <laughs> <laughs> how do we design this better? <laughs> I think you do wonderfully. <laughs> you know, it's all about, um, it's all about building rapport and I feel very comfortable with you. Good. Excellent. Uh, what was that? I mean, was it an interesting job? Like, I feel like that would be an interesting job. It was so interesting, Katie. Yeah, <laughs> I feel very lucky. Um, so we call it design ethnography or ethnographic research. Um, a real anthropologist would be mad at us for calling it that because it's not as rigorous as what they do. But um, a, cl a client would hire us, they'd have a question like, why do people drive Jeeps? Or how do we sell more toilet paper? Big open-ended question. Yeah. And we would recruit people to just talk to about their lives. We'd talk about everything that was important to them. And from that, we'd extract. The answer, yeah. <laughs> but um, so I got to meet a lot of people all over the country and eventually all over the world even. Talk about really like, prosaic things like toilet paper and cars, but because it was sort of this ethnographic interview style, I would get to learn a lot about their culture too. Yeah. So it was really fun. I got to travel on a company dime. And of course there were frustrating moments too. I was very frustrated not working with my hands. Mm. Um, and that's how I started taking woodworking classes on the weekends. Okay. I mean, where, how did you, I guess, narrow in on that? The frustration was because you weren't working with your hands specifically. You know, that's a very funny, yeah, that's a good question with a funny answer. So I have always liked making things. I have always been cutting paper or drawing or doing, you know, I had a Lego set when I was little and not with instructions, I would just build weird mm -hmm. things. <laughs> I remember there was one afternoon where we had decided we needed more desks at our office. And so they had ordered a new desk and some legs. Somebody brought in just a cordless drill and they were like, here, Phoebe, can you put these desks together? And I just felt so good holding that cord and drilling some holes. Um, so yeah, I just, that, it seems like such an inconsequential moment, but like the joy I felt, I was like, I need to pay attention to this. But aside from that, I was noticing that I was taking on a lot of like cooking projects at home. Mm -hmm. If I wasn't 
able to make something even now when I'm not able to get to the shop I start baking bread or cookies or like looking at cooking blogs so it was coming out in these strange ways mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. what led like I can kind of see the connection probably the making the desks is that what was like the idea of like oh I need to like look for woodworking classes yeah, yeah, I was like, oh my God, I can make something happen physically in the world and not in a PowerPoint deck. Um, I think what's important for me to remember because my now that I'm doing what I do, it seems very obvious my path was always wood, but it wasn't. Mm -hmm. You know, at that time I was looking up shoemaking intensive, like with cobblers, I was looking up bike building courses and I had a spreadsheet going. Um, <laughs> boat building was not on my radar. I looked up wood programs. I was looking up CFC and North Bennett. I didn't understand the differences between them. Mm -hmm. And woodworking was something that happened to be available. I had an old classmate and she was taking weekend classes. I was intimidated to even email my interests because it appeared there was always a wait list. And she said, no, just come over. I'm making a table. Just come over and, and meet John, who was the instructor. So um, yeah, he was super welcoming. He was like, yeah, when can you start? So um, it was definitely in the vein of an experiment. I didn't have a lot of woodworking experience and I was intimidated, mm -hmm. but um, yeah. Were you intimidated specifically about the the actual woodworking or just like stepping into this kind of class environment around this? Everything, <laughs> everything. I think I'm someone who, if I think I have an interest, I don't always trust it at first. Mm -hmm. It felt very much like the experience of coming out to myself. Mm -hmm. like, I think I might be, but how do I know unless I do it? <laughs> but if I do it and I find out I'm not, I'll feel so dumb. So all of those things, I was worried about saying, hey, I'm interested in woodworking and finding out I wasn't. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've never heard it explained that way, but it totally resonates with me in the same <laughs> way. <laughs> Having, having that same question about coming out to myself. I mean, I was a child, but it was definitely like, well, how do I know? Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah. When you hear stories about people who do know, they're like, I was three and I knew it in my bones. And I'm like, oh, I guess I'm definitely not gay because I didn't, right? right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And it was, I think it was the very similar with woodworking. I was more like, yeah, exactly. I was like curious. And I guess I took a different path in the sense of like, I tried a few projects like on my own and really realized like what seems now so simple, like how to connect a leg to a table did not seem simple then. And I'm like, you know, just bunches of glue and angle brackets and sure and then was surprised when it like fell apart on me you know um, but it's you know it was one of those things too of like I don't maybe it was a little bit of like I don't know if I'm competent enough 
um, like actually the design thing is what always kind of hung me up because I always teetered on the side of like that engineering side with my degree and struggled though with like, how do you design a widget and then actually know how that widget gets made. Um, and so that terrified me a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, not understanding that actually once you just get the muscle memory of working with your hands, like the the how-to in the design comes naturally because you've learned those individual steps. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The hands have a knowledge that the yeah. mind doesn't, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Hey, Revolution Pod Squad. So this week's episode is brought to you in part by me, your guest, your guest, your host, Katie Freeman. Um, I am so excited to be getting so very, very close to releasing my first ever virtual class called Wood Stain Rockstar, where I teach you how to add bright, bold, beautiful colors to any of your woodworking projects with just simple things that you can find around your kitchen. So excited to bring that to you. I promise you, if you are a beginner or if you have been woodworking for years, there is something for you to learn from this class. And it is super affordable, just starts out at $27. So really accessible to anyone and everyone. If this sounds like something you would really like to do, I would love to get you on the wait list for that. Head on over to freemanfurnishings.com. Go to the bottom of that homepage and you will see a sign up form to get added to wait lists for classes. And I will make sure that you get that link as soon as it is available, which is next week. Can't believe it's coming so soon. So it's definitely something you want to hop on right now. All right, let's head right back into the episode. So was this like a makerspace or like just a... I'm going to say thank goodness no. I mean, I love that makerspaces existed, that makerspaces exist, but this was a specifically furniture oriented shop run by this wonderful man named John Sheridan, who has now retired to Portland, Oregon, but he taught woodworking classes, furniture design classes at one of the local art schools in San Francisco. Okay. And so he, it was his personal shop that he also taught out of in the weekends for mm -hmm. non-enrolled um, art students. Yeah, so just people like me who wanted to learn woodworking, he would sort of take us under, and it was very flexible. You kind of signed up for a, a time and then there was free studio time. And it was really wonderful. There's not there's not a lot of setups like that, I think. Um, so I was really yeah. lucky, yeah. Was it kind of then, it sounds me, was it a little bit like apprentice style type of teaching? I mean, we were all free to make our own stuff. Okay. So we working for him. Um, it was very much more like a office hours situation. He okay. would run you through a couple of projects, like make a toolbox, make a stool. Um, and then it was, you would come in with, you with, with your own design and he would help you problem solve it. And you would just make whatever you wanted. Okay. Yeah. What, I mean, you came from product design, but were you ever intimidated by that? Like staring at the blank page and what the heck do I design? I think actually that has maybe become more the case <laughs> as we've gone further in the field. I could also be having sort of like selective memory, but I think at the time there were so many things I wanted to make 
it was mm -hmm. more of like, how do I choose which one to start with? Um, so I remember the first thing I made was a skateboard. <laughs> like old fashioned 70s single plank deck with a kick. Mm -hmm. What do you call it? Yeah. You're asking the wrong person. I know nothing about skateboarding, so. Okay, yeah, I So I made a, um, a skateboard um, with, <laughs> with his help and I did a cool little inlay on the top. And then, um, and then I made a bed and, you know, I had just cruised around and found a bookshelf bed design that I liked and I made that. Um, so no, I think I felt pretty confident about figuring out the dimensions and things like that. I just needed help with the woodworking parts. I remember I made a lot of bad decisions and, you know, I once glued up a panel and I had two panels that were, you know, end grain to end grain joints. Um. And you know, John was like, "Do you think you want a biscuit for that?" And I was like, "No." And he was like, okay. <laughs> you know, and I I think back on that all the time because I still have the sideboard in my house, yeah. and I'm like, "Yeah, there should be a biscuit joint in there." <laughs> yeah, the things it's like you don't know until you until you know, right? But <laughs> yeah, and I really like that he gave me the freedom to make that mistake. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, okay, I get, I definitely get the list of like things you want to make, but what about, I guess, figuring out your design style? Yeah. So I think the short answer is my feeling is that pos design possibilities multiply with the technique you have. So at that time I was like, everything's a rectangle and you just dowel it together in the corners. Mm -hmm. so I was like, what can I make that's a rectangle? And when I felt like, well, there must be more than rectangles. Somebody suggested I go to boat building school. Mm -hmm. um, I thought that was really weird because I had no interest or experience with sailing or with boats. Then I found out that there's a lot of people who are boat builders who become furniture makers and vice versa. And oh, sorry, no problem. <laughs> yeah, so um, I went to boat building school for three months. I sort of just took an unpaid leave from work and with the security knowing I could come back. I did three months and I built a boat in Maine at the apprentice shop, which is a really, really wonderful school. Um, and I think when I came back from that, I had seen all these shapes. I had picked up more skills. And I had picked up this sort of way of working that was very different. It was more improvisational, really resourceful. Um, and at that point, I started feeling a bit stuck or limited with my imagination. Or maybe I should say I, I didn't know how to make design decisions. I didn't know how to feel, okay, I'm making this because X, Y, Z reason. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's when the design frustration really started, I think. Mm -hmm. I so totally get that. I feel like when I started power carving, I knew I wanted to do the power carving, but I didn't know, you know, I'm looking at a chunk of wood and it's like, I don't know what I want it to be. And so <clears throat> I think I, you know, I looked to other artists for inspiration and 
would, I wouldn't say try to replicate because I never wanted to fully replicate, but to get something maybe similar in concept. And I struggled. I struggled so hard. It took like really just like, okay, here's a hunk of wood and I am taking this tool and it is going to be something. And like just but letting it be free, not being focused on it and being okay with, you know what? I hate this. It's going to the firewood pile. Like, like that process, I think, is what is like a specific struggle I had to go through in order to get to a point of like where I'm at now. Though I feel like I'm on the verge of another, like to push myself further into getting more different types of shapes uh, for different types of functional pieces. Like I'm I'm on that edge. And it's like I haven't yet jumped because it's still too scary but it's like I know I'm gonna have to in order to grow myself I have to just again like you can that muscle memory of your hands can free us to to create sometimes yeah I really think that that frustration is a sign that you are at a learning ready moment right Mm -hmm. that you bumped up against a limit um and some people are happy to stay within that right? You can really be enormously productive working within a set of constraints. But um, I mean, I think someone like you or maybe someone like me is constantly seeking to try something new or be challenged by something different. Mm -hmm. And that's just another orientation, I think. Yeah. And I think to me, that's like when you said in your intro, like you say woodworker and sometimes artist, to me, that's where artist comes in, um, at least personally, you know, like the wanting to push myself into different techniques or shapes or whatever. That's the artistry side. If I, to me, if I was focused solely on the woodworking side, like I would imagine I'd much more be fascinated with dialing in and perfecting like dovetail joinery or something that is like you said, very constrained. There's a certain, you know, uh, upper lower limit type thing to it, but um, you're so focused on just honing that one skill, perfecting that one skill. Um, And that's just like, I don't fit that box. I would I would stop woodworking if I had to do dovetails like, all day. Like, I would just stop. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. I can see that. I mean, I do see that like a growth mindset could happen in, in any field. True. Um, but it makes me think of this. Um, it makes me think of something my boat building instructor had said, which was, you know, as boat builders get more skill. Well, he said, as, as, furniture makers get more skill, they make more complex pieces. Mm-hmm. And as boat builders get more skill, they just make boats faster. Hmm. And it was sort of this feeling of like, boats feel more finite, right? Mm-hmm. You know how to make a boat. And so you don't necessarily innovate on the boat, but you right. get really good at making them, right? Yeah. Um, but with furniture, maybe it's more open-ended that you can really just keep, keep going, you know? Mm-hmm. So I guess, yeah, where's, I mean, I know you, you're in a different space. And so it sounds like not a lot of access to maybe shop space, but where's, where is your making at right now? Yeah, no, I'm actually the most productive that I've been, I think, 
So the pandemic really forced me to figure out how to work from home. But I would say this path has been a long time coming. After I finished, so after boat building school, before MFA, I went to the Cranom school mm -hmm. and did their nine month intensive program. And that's where I really got my technical woodworking chops. Um, and that was the best wood shop I've ever worked in and may ever work in. You know, just because everything was fine tuned to precisely the way everyone in the school works. Mm -hmm. You weren't sharing it with sculpture students who are wonderful, but destroy the machines. Right. <laughs> um, Maker space where people are coming in and building really rough work um, mm -hmm. all the way to fine work. So, you know, in MFA, I was in one of these all campus shops and I said, I cannot expect these machines to do really um, fancy stuff like they did at the Cranham School. So I'm going to find a way of working that is mostly at my bench. Mm. And so, yeah, my work at Cranbrook really prepared me for working in an apartment shop. What mm -hmm. I have now is a bandsaw and not the most amazing one. It's, it's great for what I need to do. It's a 10 inch Rikon and I have my workbench and I can produce everything I need to. Yeah. Here in my apartment, which has just been, I'm very grateful for. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you're still doing, I mean, your body of work now is coopering, correct? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Which I'm going to be completely honest, did not know was a thing until I found like, until Laura Mays led me to you to let me down that rabbit hole um, with some of the work she did. Is that, I mean, is that a practice you learned with the boat building with the angles really I would yeah. imagine it would have been something that comes in handy with boat building right I mean uh coopers often worked on boats like 200 years ago because boats transported things in barrels and barrels mm -hmm. would break and they would need to be fixed um but no I learned coopering and I like to point out like there's traditional coopering it's thousands of years old as a technique and I don't do that I don't okay. know how to make a barrel. I really respect the craft and there are people who train for years, you know, to be mm -hmm. able to do that. What I learned is an adaptation that Krenov, um, the, yeah, an adaptation that we learned at the Krenov school, which is just to cut a flat board into narrower pieces, bevel them on the edges and glue them back together in a curve. Mm -hmm. um, I'm definitely not the only person who does it. Um, the longer I do it, the more, People send me links and like, oh, have you seen this person? I'm like, that's amazing. Um, uh, yes, yeah, so I learned it at the Cranham School. I did it once there and didn't do it again until four years later in grad school. What do you think it is about that craft specifically that like calls to you? Yeah, it's a funny thing because you are drawn to it before you have words for it. And then people ask you questions where then you have to justify it. So for me, the initial draw and the enduring draw is just the magic of it, of mm -hmm. taking something flat and turning it into a curve. I know you can do that with steam bending or you mm -hmm. can brute force saw a curve out of a big block of wood, but with steam bending, it gets panicky and rushed and hot. 
and there's steam everywhere and you need equipment and you have to wait and then there's a short time frame like as an anxious person I don't need more of that in my life <laughs> I love steam bending I love what people do with steam bending and it's just not something I want to do on a regular basis mm-hmm. um, I think you need a big setup and often other people helping you so um yeah, and it also reminds me of the experience of building a boat, which again was a beautiful experience and really a lot of muscle work. I remember mm-hmm. pushing on these 12 foot planks of pine and knowing that if I let go, it would smack me in the face, right? Mm-hmm. And being afraid it would crack and just feeling like you're wrestling with the wood, that mm-hmm. you're in the struggle with the wood, trying to get the wood to do something it doesn't want to do. Mm-hmm. and not to get too like woo-woo about it, but I don't want to fight with the wood. The way I learned to work with wood at the Krenov School and the way that suits me is sort of in collaboration or cooperation with the wood. So coopering is very calm. You take your time, you place your cuts, you assemble the curve, it takes several days, you can come back to it. Um, and it also allows me to place my cuts in a very strategic way. So the way I like to work now is I look for a piece of wood. I go to the lumber yard, I walk up and down the aisles. I don't go in saying, I'm gonna use dug fir today. I'm gonna use white oak. Mm-hmm. I kind of look for a piece of wood that's just really exciting to me. And I don't always know why. And sometimes I don't even know that piece is important until I get home. You know, mm-hmm. I'll get home and one piece will be like, hey, I'm really <laughs> exciting. Work with me. And then I'll design the work to that wood. If it's six feet tall, that's all the wood I get. I have to mm-hmm. figure out how to get an interesting form out of that. Um, sometimes I start with a form, but I'm most comfortable starting with the wood, I would say. Um, I think I lost track of the original question. <laughs> no, you're good, you're good. Yeah. <laughs> hey makers, today's episode is sponsored in part by toolmomstore.com. At toolmomstore.com, you can find any and all tool-based merchandise for all genders, all sizes. They've got mugs, they've got shirts, all kinds of cool stuff. I have uh, one of the shirts myself that has the uh, hashtag woodworker on it. And I also have a couple of the mugs that define what and who is a tool chick. So super excited with the merchandise that I have. I know that you will be satisfied as well. Um, And also, great discount for those of you who listen to the podcast at checkout if you enter the code maker mom you will get a 20 percent discount off any of the merchandise that you buy so that's just toolmomstore.com all right let's head back into the action i asked what draws you to it and i think you totally answered all of that um and i also um again that that resonates i don't i do sketch just because i I try to work on sketching like shapes, not necessarily like a fully designed piece, but I'll sketch out shapes. And I think that just keeps my mind open to shapes. And so it's one of those, like, I see a piece of wood and I go, that's what that's going, like, I 
just know that's what it's going to be, right? It's not, um, it's not a design a piece first. It's I see the wood and then what it's going to be comes to me. Um, and then there's also pieces in my shop, pieces of wood where it's like, it just hasn't told me yet what it wants to be, <laughs> you know? So it's just sitting there waiting for it. Um, and, and that can be both exciting and frustrating at times as the wood pile continues to grow and <laughs> there's, there's nothing coming from it yet. Right. Yeah, I can imagine that's especially the case for a sculpture or pieces in the round, right? Mm -hmm. It's so particular to each individual piece. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I love looking for pieces that it's like, um, you know, I've done a few pieces where it's like it comes from a piece of wood that was totally attacked by ants. And I like love those pieces. Those yeah. are like my favorite. Um, so it's always weird pieces and it's always like, someone's like, why are you buying like this half rotten piece of wood? And, <laughs> you know? and it's like, because there's so much good there. Like, you know, once you stabilize it, it will be wonderful. So yeah, yeah. it's talking to you. <laughs> yeah. The weird ones always talk more. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you know, I just learned recently that Wharton Escherich um, you know, he worked, he made furniture but he also made sculpture. Mm -hmm. And there was a sawyer in town I think his name was Ed Roy maybe. Um, and he started setting aside the weirdest logs for Wharton Escherich. So, mm -hmm. um, which I think is really cool. You know, Escherich had this whole network of people who were helping him in different ways. And then he gets all the glory and the credit. <laughs> right. It was a Sawyer setting, setting aside really awesome logs for him. Yeah. Yeah, I have similar, very similar relationships with a, a few of the tree services, local tree services in town. So it's like, you know, especially because generally what they're cutting down is a tree that's like diseased or like lightning took it out or something, right? Like there's a reason it's coming down. Um, but they'll be, they, I've trained their eye to be like, Katie would want that piece, you know? So it's like, I'll come home and there's like a hunk of wood outside my garage and it's fantastic. That is so awesome. Yeah, yeah. I mean, tornado season must be great for you. We just lost <laughs> like hundreds of trees out here last weekend. Yeah, well, last, were you in the, I don't know if it affected Illinois. Were you in Illinois last summer? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we had the uh, derecho come through, which is, um, like over an hour of sustained almost you know 200 mile per hour winds oh my so God. yeah like cedar rapids which is about 30 miles away from here lost 90 percent of their tree canopy um like it looked like it, it still does looks like a war zone um when you drive through there because they've lost so many trees but yeah i am like up to my you know over my head in wood because <laughs> it's like after that happened everyone's like Katie come take her stuff you know because they just had so much to get rid of but yeah they're on yourself so there's three more of you <laughs> exactly exactly um but yeah so when are you cutting all of the bevels on the uh bandsaw yeah um I I do. I cut the staves on the bandsaw and then I hand plane the edges and then I okay. glue everything together. Yeah. And so, I mean, all the joinery has got to, is it, it's just glue, right? Not just long grain joints with. Yeah. I've too. Yep. 
I I mean I I have to imagine it's got to be meditative in a way. There are parts. There are parts that are meditative. The part where I get to zone out most is when I'm using my round bottom planes to cooper, not to cooper, to smooth out the inside mm -hmm. and take the facets off of that glue up. Mm -hmm. It can take a long time, you know, quite a lot of the work is that final smoothing. And because I don't use any power tools, no grinding, no sanding, mm -hmm. um, it's really just the, the finished surface is really just the planed surface. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is, it is a bit meditative. And I think if I didn't enjoy that part, I would not be doing it. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I can imagine. Um, I feel like when I look at your pieces, they're very liquid looking. Um, I mean, is there, is there a lot of ins like inspiration like from water or other sources like that that brings that shape to you? Um, that's funny you should ask. There's one body of work in particular, which is called the Swell series. And it was very directly uh, inspired by swimming in the lake. I think I talk about that a little bit um, in the writing that goes with that work on my website. So that is definitely inspired by water and the experience of being in water. I don't think it's trying to depict water. I'm not right. really a literal translation. Right. Um, I think a couple of other inspirations or references, I would say references really um, are, there was an artist named Valley Export, a feminist artist performance sort of artist who was very active in sort of the seventies. And she had a body of work, not her most well-known one called Body Configurations, where she kind of saw architecture as a symbol of the patriarchy, these hard unyielding forms that we were forced to live with. And she just went around the city and draped her body over, you know, stairs, corners, sidewalks. Mm. Um, and I also think about yarn bombers who go and sort of adorn in a very like, you know, form conforming way to treat mm -hmm. posts and things. Um, I wouldn't say that's where my work started, but as, as I started working the way I do, I find a lot of resonance with those mm -hmm. artists. Yeah. Um, so no, not always water, but I, I think gravity. Mm -hmm. I like thinking about what would this wood do if it allowed gravity to interact with it, right? Yeah. So there's a lot of draping pieces mm -hmm. or pieces that sort of look like they're pinned in one spot and just allowed to fall. Right. Yeah. Yeah, to me, it's the true, I mean, I see like more of that waterfall effect, you know, with the, the gravity um, piece to that. Um, yeah, super, I mean, super inspiring work. I really like uh, seeing your pieces. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, where you're at, uh -huh. where do you see yourself pushing into going forward? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, I'm a, in my creative life, 
for creative projects, I really like constraints. I find constraints very generative. So coopering is a constraint that I've chosen mm -hmm. for myself. Everything I make, it's like, what can I cooper or what can I do with coopering that's surprising or that I haven't seen before? Mm -hmm. So I think that I have not exhausted that yet. Um, there are so many more things I can cooper. And even within coopering, the way I work is very limited. You know, I don't do tapered staves, for example. Mm -hmm. Nothing gets narrower um, the way a true barrel would. And I don't vary in thickness. You know, I'm, I'm very much about this should look like it was flat and it just curved on its own accord. Um, and in terms of where I want to take it, I don't really see exploring those things. People have asked me, oh, have you tried tapering? And like one, maybe it feels a bit intimidating, but two, I'm just, I don't feel I need to branch out yet. I have so much yeah. more to explore in this very specific, um, you know, room, conceptual mm -hmm. room that I've set up for myself. So I think the work itself, I, I feel good about just keeping on keeping on. I think in terms of evolution, I have more, a sense of anticipation or um, questions around what I'm going to do with my career, mm -hmm. right? And I think it's a question that a lot of craftspeople have, which is how do I make this sustainable? Because yeah. very rarely does the craft itself pay for it, your <laughs> life, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't pay the rent for most people. Um, so it's a question of, do I try to get lucky enough to find a, a good teaching job do I create a product or item that I can sell on the side? Do I actually have an unrelated job, a bill paying insurance getting jobs yeah. <laughs> so this on the side and not have the pressure of um, it generating income? Uh, marrying Rich is already off the table. I'm married and I married a wonderful person, but she doesn't have billions and billions of dollars. <laughs> fine with that um you know but she's also in the same boat of having gone to mfa late and is, is a writer mm -hmm. and so you know we're both looking at each other like okay what's next <laughs> <laughs> so i am in this inflection point of i have been doing the thing that i am interested in doing and so privileged to have had that work out so far but yeah big questions where are we going to be next year how are we going to be supporting ourselves? Right, so mm -hmm. I'm at a moment where the anxieties are not around what am I going to make, but how am I going to like make it, like literally make it. Yeah. yeah. I also get all of that. That's like a annual question because it definitely is not working so far. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I get to meet like other really cool people who are passionate about similar things. And right now I take that as the win and, uh, you know, do a totally unrelated job in order to bring income in. So totally get it. <laughs> um, Okay, so I'm looking looking at our time, and um, I want to say thank you for being here today and also give you a chance to let people know how they can find your work. Oh, thanks. Um, yeah, this has been really fun, and I've enjoyed talking to you. 
I hope there's some useful stuff in there um, for your podcast. Um, I am online. I have a website. It's just www.phoebequo.com. That's my name. Um, and then I'm also on Instagram, which is linked through my, my webpage, or it's just at P-F-E-B-E-S. It's a really messed up spelling of Phoebe that <laughs> a college roommate wrote on a takeout box once, and I've had it ever since. <laughs> yeah, or if you're ever around Evanston, Illinois, feel free to drop me a line and we can go for a swim in the lake. There you go. Awesome. Okay, so again, that was Phoebe Quo, and I will include the links on how you can follow along with her and find all of her amazing work in this week's show notes, which just look for that in the description on whatever podcast app you are listening to this on, or if you happen to be watching this on YouTube, check the description down below for those links to follow along with Phoebe. If you enjoyed this week's interview and any of the previous interviews, please make sure that you are subscribed on your podcast app, or if you're watching on YouTube, hit that subscribe button and bell there as well. So you are alerted when there are new episodes, which again are every Wednesday and Friday. Please make sure to head over to Apple iTunes and leave a five-star review. And most importantly, truly most importantly, please share with a friend or two or three, that you're enjoying this podcast and that they really should check it out as well. I have a goal to hit 10,000 downloads per month by the end of the year. So that's a pretty big stretch goal, but I know we can do it, Pod Squad. I really know, I believe in you that we can do this. We're hitting about an average of 2,500 downloads a month right now. So I want to times up by four. And in order to make that happen, I need you to share about the podcast. So pod squad, you have your marching orders. Let's make this happen. All right. When I'm not uh, interviewing and making podcast episodes, you can find me designing and making furniture and other home decor at freemanfurnishings.com and at Freeman Furnishings pretty much across all the social media, most active on Instagram and TikTok though, at Freeman Furnishings. So I do need to say one more thank you. I want to shout out again, Wall Control and Hang Time. You can see their beautiful work behind me. So if you're listening to this, then I'm going to explain to you that I am in my podcast studio, which is still a work in progress. But I do have part of the walls done by Wall Control and Hang Time, allowing me to get this operational much, much sooner. And if you're watching on YouTube, then you can definitely see these wonderful pieces behind me. <clears throat> so thank you so much to them. All right, it's Friday. I hope you guys have a wonderful weekend. And as always, let's go craft a revolution.